pray with me. We give thanks to our holy and sovereign Lord. You are our creator. You formed each of us and gave us breath. You've provided many good things for us to enjoy. You gave us love from our birth. You were clear that you are the authority as our Lord and King. Yet all of us have rebelled against your love, against your authority. We have done what is right in our own eyes. We have given into the lie that we can be God of our life. We have believed that our sin should be accepted so that we justify what is right in our own eyes. And the reality is that we are a broken people, broken in our selfishness. Praise be to Jesus Christ who humbled himself to become a man, yet still God. You did what was contrary to our rebellion. You died and resurrected on our behalf. You paid our debt of sin and defeated death. You did this while we were your enemy. You did this in order that some would return to understanding that you are Lord and King over all. So Lord, may we operate in this truth. May we repent and serve you, the Most High God. May we take action today for you are coming again to judge this world and put the deceiver in chains. Let us see through the deception and know how great is your love and know how, great, how righteous and just is our Lord so that we will live by the gospel, so that we live for your glory. Amen. 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 Thanks, Patrick. You can have a seat, and you can open up to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. History is full of heroes who when confronted with the dilemma of choosing between two lawful authorities, chose the one that both their conscience and the word of God declared as just. In our own country, we need look no further than the Underground Railroad and the threat of harm that many endured to help oppressed slaves find freedom. In the mid-1800s, for example, the law of the land was known as the Fugitive Slave Act, it required anyone who came into contact with a runaway slave to capture them and return them to the slave owner. And yet, many Christians chose to fight against this law because of its conflict with biblical precedent that all men and women are image bearers of God and therefore equal. One abolitionist in particular, a Quaker named Thomas Garrett, was a white businessman in Delaware who openly housed and aided as many as 2,700 runaway slaves on the Underground Railroad, one of those being Harriet Tubman herself. His, violation, his violating of the law of the land led to being fined so heavily that in later life he was destitute. Another example of one of these heroes came in World War II. A Dutch watchmaker and her family chose to go against the law of the land and the occupying Nazi force and hide Jews in their home so that they would not have to face certain death in the Nazi concentration camps. Eventually, that woman, Corey Ten Boom, and her family were arrested and sent to a concentration camp where she experienced the trials she would later record in her book, The Hiding Place. Thomas Garrett, Corey Ten Boom, and many other Christ followers across history, when confronted with two kingdoms in conflict, chose to give allegiance to God, the God of the Bible, alone. These examples and situations are often used in ethics classes when discussing the topic called graded absolutism or graded ethics, which asks the question, when confronted with two contradictory moral choices, what do we do? Put simply, it's a dilemma that plainly declares who the authority is in one's life. 
For Christians, we've been given the answer. Even when faced with two seemingly law-abiding choices, we choose allegiance to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and what his command declares. The living God who endures forever and whose kingdom shall never be destroyed. He is the one who sets our morals. And that is what these two examples I've given you did, and that is what you and I are to do, regardless of the cost. The text we have before us today, the text of Daniel, is one that is meant to both empower to that end as well as provide hope for those who welcome suffering, persecution, and death because we are following the Lord. It is possibly one of the most well-known Sunday school stories there is, Daniel and the lion's den. But what I want to show you uh, within it today is that it gives great hope to those of us following Christ when we feel stuck in the midst of two kingdoms at war. It shows us sovereignty and salvation amidst two kingdoms in conflict. If you're taking notes, that's what I've entitled the sermon this morning, Sovereignty and Salvation Amidst Two Kingdoms in Conflict. Now, throughout Daniel, we have seen the theme of two kingdoms at war, two kingdoms in conflict. Our main Hebrew characters have been exiled into a foreign kingdom that typifies rebellion against God, and we've seen how they've endured in the midst. But each of us can know that this conflict exists, and even then, when we are stuck at the very point of collision between these two kingdoms, we can still not know how to respond. And so I hope today is an encouragement to respond in faithful obedience to the Lord, because even in spite of present circumstances, God is still in control. He is still the sovereign Lord. So let's begin by looking at the background truth of our story that those who follow the Lord will find themselves at the center of two kingdoms in conflict. Those who follow the Lord will find themselves at the center of two kingdoms in conflict. We're going to read from Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 9. Daniel 6, 1 through 9. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction." The setting for our story this morning finds us probably mere weeks or months after the events of chapter 5. The Medo-Persian alliance has conquered the kingdom of Babylon and taken the capital city by storm with pretty much no battle because the people in Babylon have welcomed their conquerors because their previous rulers were such lackluster leaders that they wanted somebody else. Now, because you'll run into this with any commentary or criticism on Daniel, I want to point out to you that the name of the ruler that's given and put forward here is Darius in chapter 6, verse 1. Now, historically and archaeologically, this does not currently, when I say currently, uh, because as I'll describe in a moment, it's important to understand that. Currently, it does not make sense. The main ruler known for overthrowing Babylon was Cyrus the Great, and he is referred to in Daniel chapter 10. But we also have here, as well as in chapters 9 and 11, Darius, spoken of as the ruler. And so those that want to discredit Daniel, and really the Bible in general, have used this to say that it is historically inaccurate and written much later than we want to assume with the historical Daniel. 
But the simple answer for this is to look at chapter 5 that we went through last week in the story of Belshazzar. Up until 100 years ago, critics ripped apart that chapter as proof of the Bible's error. And then, within the last 100 years, multiple weighty archaeological finds have occurred which actually prove chapter 5's validity, that Belshazzar was a king over the city of Babylon. You see, over the entirety of the church, it has proven a fool's errand to try and discredit the Bible with archaeology. It has always eventually proven the Bible true. We're just a bit slow on the uptake, if you will. And so it currently doesn't make sense to us. So whether Darius was a separate ruler that was somehow operating in a sub-regency position to Cyrus, whether it was a title or a nickname for Cyrus the Great himself, or whether it was the name of a conquering general and right-hand man of Cyrus, no one truly knows for sure. But as with chapter 5, we trust the validity of the word of God, and we wait patiently to see it proven. Almost immediately after the events of chapter 5, though, the empire gets to work in building a structure of leadership, putting 120 districts or states or satrapies in place, and a satrap is leading those. It's a fancy word that means country protector, and they're over each of those areas. And then above them, there are three ultimate high officials, of whom Daniel was one, that were in authority over the satraps. Because of his history of wonderful service to the kingdom of Babylon and his great wisdom and the spirit that's within him, Daniel is looked upon by Darius with great favor and in essence put in place as kind of the second in command. But then, as is usually the case in the earthly realm, politics immediately invades. Notice that in this section between verses uh, 6 and 9, all of the uh, conspirators come to Darius, the two high officials and then some of the satraps, and they say, hey, all of us are unified in this idea that you should do this thing, that you should put this law in place, when in reality, who was the one person left out in the dark? It was Daniel. And so politics is invading here. And remember that part of the origin, uh, the origin of the fall is the refusal of any human to be under authority or submission to another. It's part of what makes us rebellion, uh, rebellious human beings. We don't want to have anyone rule over us. We want to be gods. And this was the pride that was at the core of Adam and Eve's desire to be like God and to remove God's position as the one who determines good and evil. And so we see these satraps and the two other high officials get built up in this frenzy of anger that Daniel, a mere exile, from the Hebrew people should rule over them. You can almost hear them yell, we will not have this man rule over us. And twice the phrase will be used here in the ESV, they came by agreement. You can see that in verse 6, the first mention of it. In both cases, this phrase has the negative and malicious connotations of conspiring together to do harm to Daniel. And these officials, they represent every ruler, every leader, and every politician who has convinced themselves that they are serving the people when in reality they're trying to gain power for their own sinful purposes and pride. In looking at Daniel, though, there is nothing in him to be found that can be brought against him. We've seen throughout the book that Daniel understands that his life, his words, his actions, everything he does is a witness that reflects Yahweh. And so it says that they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. I wonder, friends, if Salem, if our coworkers, if our neighbors, if our peers, our spouses, our kids can look at those of us in this room and say the same thing about our lives. Do we live our lives in a way to gain this same good favor with the very people we are trying to reach with the gospel? It's a good question to ask. But because these leaders could find no fault, the conspiracy against Daniel realized that all they could do is set Daniel's unwavering faithfulness and obedience to the sovereignty of Yahweh over and against the requirement of allegiance to an earthly king and kingdom. Now, friends, this is not new. It is the battle plan of the enemy since the foundation of the world. It is the story of the fall in Genesis 3. Who 
will you obey? The serpent, yourself, or God? To whom will you give your allegiance? The serpent or Yahweh? In whom do you trust? After all, this is what the adversary presented to Eve and to Adam. Did he really say that? In essence, can you really trust him? And so the adversary of God presented the same dilemma then. He presents the same dilemma now, and he presented the same dilemma to Daniel. But what should Daniel do? Should he follow the law of the land as established by the prideful heart of the Persian conspirators? Or should he follow the law of God that supersedes it? This is a case of graded absolutism, graded ethics. It is a choice between serving man-made laws or serving the God of his forefathers, the living God. And Daniel found himself at the center of two kingdoms in conflict. And so it seems that the text before us is telling us that God's people must answer the question of sovereignty before the conflict comes. God's people must answer the question of sovereignty before the conflict comes. Let's read the next section in Daniel 6 and see what it says. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. Now notice the wording here is kind of funny. Uh, It's not that he went to his house because the document was signed. It was more talking about chronology. He knew that the document was signed at the time he went to his house. And he had a window in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came, notice the phrase, by agreement, conspiring, and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, you can almost see the Cheshire cat grin on their face as they say this. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement, there's that phrase again, to the king and said to the king, now, O king, that it uh, it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Here we are presented with a contrast between three different parties, three different motivations. You have Daniel, the conspirators, and the king. And each one is answering to a different authority. In the mind of the conspirators, it's a done deal. The sovereign power to which they bow, even though it's not truly sovereign, is their own hubris and pride, arrogance and fear, peer pressure as well. It is out of these motivations that they manipulate the king to create a temporary law that shows him who will be faithful and who will not in his newly created kingdom. This was to be evidence of who was going to be on his side, that the king alone would be the one mediator between the gods and the people. But in the mind of Daniel, it also seems equally simple. He does what he has always done and probably what, by this point in his life, he has been doing for seven or eight decades of his life. He stands firm on the principles and commands of the God of his forefathers. Now let's pause for a moment and look at why we can say that, why we can say that biblical precedent guides Daniel. Now obviously we are commanded, and so were the Jewish people of the Old Testament, we are commanded to pray. But here Daniel prays in a specific way, towards the direction of Jerusalem. 
And perhaps this is out of obedience to the historical scripture which recalls the dedication of the temple by Solomon, the place at which God's tangible Shekinah glory had dwelt with Israel. In 1 Kings, uh, Solomon prays this to God. He says this in 1 Kings 8.35. He says, When heaven is shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them. And he goes on to say, then you will heal your people, you will heal their land. And right before this is a statement about what happens when your people are conquered and put into exile. And so it could be that this actual uh, verse is speaking to the fact that Daniel wanted to pray towards Jerusalem because his people were in exile. Perhaps Daniel was praying this way because he felt it was in obedience to God in his current circumstance. He also prays three times a day, specifically as he always had. And perhaps he based this on the uh, model of David in Psalm 55, casting his cares on God. This is from Psalm 55, 16 through 19. David says, but I call to God and the Lord, Yahweh, will save me. Notice, evening, morning, and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan. And he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, Selah, because they do not change and do not fear God. Now, we don't know for sure that this is what was in Daniel's mind, but it definitely seems uh, to resonate with his situation. We know that Daniel's people had always done prayer. They had always gone to the Lord with the lament, and Daniel would always pray to God, who was his sovereign uh, ruler, his sovereign king and the sovereign king over his people. And so the conspirators submitted to the sovereign rule of their own pride and ego, and Daniel submitted to the sovereign rule of Yahweh, but then we have the king, King Darius. And the king is pictured as both a weighty conquering power and one who is quick to make definitive judgments, but he is also one who caves to peer pressure and his own weak ego. When he realizes what he has done in creating a law that would harm his best ruler, He fumbles in trying to find a legal remedy and even loses sleep over the possibility that Daniel might die. He is pictured as one the book of James calls double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Now, since we're talking about that, why don't we go ahead and turn to James and let's take a look with me at what it says in James chapter 1. Because this story reminds me very much of the words of James. And let's see, indeed, how... King Darius is a double-minded man. If you turn past the book of Hebrews, you'll end up at James. Now, as we read through this, I want us to think about all of the uh, themes that we've seen throughout Daniel, the themes of pride and humility, asking for wisdom and being foolish, the theme of suffering and God doing work through suffering. And I just want you to kind of lay this section of James over the top of Daniel and look at how the two interact. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. He says this, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. It's almost as if James has been listening to our sermons in Daniel. Trial is not to be seen as a curse, but in that trial, the humbling that comes so that we might submit further to the sovereignty of God, is a benevolent gift. It's a benevolent grace, not a malevolent curse. 
But let us be steadfast and immovable in Christ before the trial comes, because if not, we will be tossed to and fro as King Darius was. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast in the test of the trial, for it is that person that is assured that they are in Christ and will receive the crown of life. Friends, the time to decide who you submit to and who is the sovereign ruler of your life is not at the moment you are thrown to the lions or brought before the authorities, or challenged by your peers to discard your convictions. It is now, before the trial comes. Make sure it is the sovereign God you follow, rather than fear of of pride or popular opinion, fear of man. Otherwise, you will waver. And this reminds me of Israel in the book of Joshua. When confronted with the fearful reality of going into the promised land in armed combat to take hold of the land God had given them, Israel started to waver. But their leader, Joshua, a type and foreshadow of Christ to come, encouraged them in Joshua 24, 14 through 15. He says, now therefore, fear the Lord. And remember, behind that is the name of our God, Yahweh. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that they served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. In other words, serve the world or serve Yahweh. But then he says this famous line, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The answer is not to wait until the moment of trial when the kingdom of God and the kingdom of of the world collide in your midst and you're stuck in between. Because then the questions that will go through your mind are not, what would Christ have me do? But they are, what do I think I should do? What am I feeling? What is the world telling me? What do my friends believe? What is the media telling me? What makes sense to me? Do you see the problem with those questions? double-minded, unstable in all our ways. When that becomes our compass, we are already off course. Instead, it should be what has Christ determined and commanded in his word. Another question we can ask is, in what way has he guided the church and has the church guided us over its orthodox history as it followed the commands of Christ? Also, in what direction is the multitude of godly counsel helping to direct me? In these ways, we are submitting to the sovereignty of the one true God and not raising ourselves up or the world up to be the sovereign ruler of our lives. When we discuss the sovereign reign of God in our lives, what we mean is that to call Christ our king is to once and for all submit authority of our life to him, to his word, and to his church. It is to surrender your own authority and allow him to sit on the throne of your life. And as evangelicals, as Protestants, we do such a good job of preaching the fact that Jesus is our Savior, that in his substitutionary atoning work, he has saved us from our own sin and reconciled us to the Father. But we still struggle as evangelicals to say what it means that Jesus is our King. Many of us are comfortable with Savior but many of us still struggle with Jesus as our ruling king. In many situations, having Jesus as our sovereign ruler will make our decisions easy, but in others, it will mean we need to wrestle together to find the will of God. And this is why the last year, brothers and sisters, has been so difficult to navigate. At every turn, our elder team has done our best to balance the love of those in this church and in our community, with submission to our governing authorities as taught throughout the Bible, all in ultimate submission to the God that calls us to gather each week as a proclamation of the truth that he is our sovereign Lord and King above all others. Now, if the government had commanded us to pray to a different God, to cease worshiping altogether, or to denounce the name of Christ, it would have been a far easier task for us as elders to decide our response. Amen? Pretty blatant no would be the answer. But that was not the case. 
And while some disagree with the route we have taken, I feel confident that our hearts in leading you in this have been submitted to God's ultimate reign and glory. Now, we may absolutely, I can pretty much guarantee you that we as your leaders have made steps at points that were incorrect. But overall, I believe we have been submitted to God's word in the tension and balance we have chosen to strike so that we can show in fullness that Jesus is our sovereign Lord. So I want to say thank you to those of you who, even while disagreeing here and there, have had grace for us and the other leaders of this church in the realization that we have been navigating as humans without clear direction. It would have been nice if there was a book on COVID in the Bible, right? But ultimately, you've been seeing that we have done our best to glorify Jesus. And so I pray that as we navigate the chaos from here on out, we can be unified in one heart and one mind to put aside any differences of opinion and work together to proclaim Jesus in all we do. Can I get an amen? Amen. Now this, dear brothers and sisters, is so important because the chaos of 2020 and into 2021 is not the end. More chaos will come, and in fact, more blatant chaos will come. More blatant disregard for the sovereign rule of Christ will be thrown our way in the coming years, especially when it comes to the topics of gender, sexuality, marriage, and the sovereign rule of Christ within the church. And we will need to meet it with grace, determination, endurance, and ultimately a heart to glorify Christ. We as a church and as individuals need to be prepared for the day when we are metaphorically thrown to the beasts, as Daniel was. And in that moment, we need to remember a solitary truth that will keep us strong and remove any fear that we might have. And that truth is that God has provided deliverance from the beasts that desire to devour us. God has provided deliverance from the beasts that desire to devour us. You can turn back to Daniel 6, and we'll finish reading that that chapter. God has provided deliverance from the beasts that desire to devour us. Let's take a look at Daniel 6, 19. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. I seem to remember that being excluded from the Sunday school lesson I learned. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions." So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The king awakes at the break of day and runs to the lion's den. And notice his proclamation, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And the answer is a resounding yes. But friends, I really want us to notice the response of Daniel here. Notice the respect of Daniel toward the king. Now, if anybody had a right to be a bit miffed about how he was treated by a government official, don't you think it would be Daniel? Don't you think he would have the right to yell back or to post something on Facebook or to get a bumper sticker that calls for his ouster? 
If anybody did, it would be Daniel. But notice, there was no anger, no bitterness, no vicious slander, but a simple proclamation of the work of God. That God showed up, much as he did in the story of the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace, is what he wanted to proclaim. And he wanted to state that God acted in salvation to close the mouth of the lions. Daniel goes on to say that the reason was because he was found blameless before God and before the king. What he is describing here is what's uh, called a trial by ordeal. If you're taking notes, you can write that down, a trial by ordeal. And he had been found innocent. A trial by ordeal was common in ancient Near East culture, that when a situation turned out to be a he said, she said, or there was no solid proof or there was doubt in the false witnesses that were proclaiming slander. A trial by ordeal would be used to find out the truth of innocence or guilt. The closest thing in our historic culture in the United States is the really bad period of time where we had the witch trials, and we would suggest that a person would be known if they were a witch or not by tying them up and throwing them in a river and other things. Now, that's a perversion of this ideal of, idea of trial by ordeal. But there's a, an example even closer to us in the Bible you can look at as a great example on your own time. Uh, this is the case of a woman accused of adultery in Numbers 5. You can go read that on your own. The case of a woman accused of adultery in Numbers 5. But there, a trial of ordeal is used to proclaim innocence or guilt. And Daniel exclaims that this trial by ordeal that he had been in had proven his innocence and therefore his victory over the conspirators and the kingdom of darkness to which they belonged. Now, so often this story is used to provide a simple parable based on verse 23, that if one trusts enough in God, they will be saved from trials. Now, those of us that read the Bible, is that what the Bible says? That those who are faithful and follow God can be assured that they won't have trials? No, in fact, it's the exact opposite. Now, there might actually be a piece of truth in that that has some validity, but I think it's a gross oversimplification that's often used as a harmful tool to harm others when they're going through trials. Because there's actually a far stronger point here than just that. The lions here are used symbolically as judgment. They were to be the punishment and consequence given out to the one who has broken the law. And Daniel was found blameless, and so God protected him. And this would have been wonderful news to the generations of Christians facing their own martyrdom, sometimes even at the mouth of lions in the Roman gladiatorial coliseums. But even within that, we need to look at the theme of the beasts given throughout Daniel and the rest of the Bible that comes to almost a culmination here. Two Sundays ago, in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, we looked at the themes of beasts and whether mankind would rule over them as commanded by God or would succumb to them and become beasts themselves based on their own pride. Then in chapter 5, in the story of Belshazzar, we were reminded of this truth again last week. And next week, in chapter 7, we will see this beastly imagery of individuals morph into grotesque beasts that represent the kingdoms of the earth backed by the ultimate kingdom of darkness that uh, is trying to overtake the kingdom of God. And they will all ultimately, as we will see in chapter 7, be conquered by the work of the Son of Man, the Messiah of God, the one we know as Jesus the Christ. And so in the flow of this theme, it seems to me that the author of Daniel wants us very much to see the lions as just that, beasts that wish to devour us. And in this same imagery, we can see many beasts, can't we? We can see the beastliness that's within us that we have looked at over the last few weeks that feeds on our pride as we set ourselves up as judge over God and others. There's the beastly pull of the worldly system and the kingdom around us that hopes to devour us. It is this system and power behind all the attacks on the kingdom of God and his commands to us. It is this kingdom of darkness that motivated and drove the conspirators against Daniel. It is this same kingdom that motivated and drove the conspirators against David as he penned in Psalm 22 that we read earlier this morning. We read earlier that where he said, the beasts are around him, they Open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. That's from Psalm 22, 12 through 13. 
It was also this system that caused the religious leaders of Jesus' day to conspire together for his death. And isn't it interesting that David, in Psalm 22, prophetically foreshadowed the cross and the crucifixion of the one who would be the Christ when he penned this in Psalm 22:16, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Ultimately, the beast within and the beast without They work under the direction of the ultimate beast, the one who Revelation calls the beast, the adversary of God himself, Ha-Satan in the Hebrew. We know him as Satan. The one whom Peter declared as a roaring lion in 1 Peter 5.8. He prowls around seeking someone to devour. All of these beasts, employed under submission to the kingdom of darkness as their authority, seek to destroy those who follow Christ in spirit and in truth. Paul knew this well when he made this random reference in 2 Timothy 4.17. He said, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Commentators wonder if he meant literal lions of the Colosseum or figurative lions, the same that we're discussing, the beasts that wish to devour us. And this is why, dear brothers and sisters, we need to cling to Christ as a drowning man clings to a rope. We need to cling so heavily and tightly to the good news of the gospel. In Psalm 22, David cries out with this in 19 through 21, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. David prophetically declared that he needed God to provide his salvation and save him from the mouth of the beasts that wanted to devour him. At the cross of Calvary, Jesus gave us that salvation. And he gave it to us in such a powerful way that we need not fear any force or any kingdom that might lift itself up against the sovereign reign of our Savior and King. Our text today, written centuries before Christ, perfectly foreshadows the work of the cross to such an extent that the gospel writers recalled the imagery of Daniel 6 as they proclaimed Christ the ultimate blameless sacrifice. For it was Jesus the Messiah who was truly sinless, blameless, and in whom no ground for complaint or any fault could be found because he was faithful to God the Father. He was one who served God the Father continually. He was the sinless sacrifice provided by our triune God, of which he was a part, on our behalf, that could take on our sins so that we might be seen as blameless, his righteousness imputed to us. And it was this same Jesus who was placed in a cave with a stone rolled over the mouth of the tomb, and the gospel author Matthew tells us that this stone was sealed, similar to Daniel, so that none might change anything about it. From that moment until the Sunday following, it was this Jesus who was given over to the ultimate trial by ordeal. And it was this same Jesus who three days later at the break of day rose from the grave as his disciples sprinted to find out if he was alive. Unlike the families that were cast into the lion's den in the story of Daniel, the Bible says that not one bone was broken in Christ because he had proven innocent. In his emergence from the tomb and resurrection, Jesus proved that he was indeed God incarnate, sent amongst man to be victorious over sin and death. And in his sinless sacrifice, the bonds of our sin, of death and hell, they were broken so that we might be ushered into the kingdom in which he reigns, submitting our lives to his sovereign rule and going to the ends of the earth, declaring the truth that our God reigns. And this imagery sets us up in Daniel chapter 7 in a massive way next week as we will look at the fullness of this proclamation of the sovereign reign of God's Messiah. So make sure not to miss it, even though it's spring break, and I know 
You got fun things planned. Let's be here to go over one of the most beautiful chapters in the book of in the Bible, but also in the book of Daniel, chapter seven. Well, the application of what we see in Daniel six, in the practical response of Daniel and its foreshadowing of Christ, is so important for us to gain today. So I want to give you a couple of application points here to finish. First, it poses to us the question of who we will emulate and whom we will serve. Will we be like the conspirators acting in the sovereignty of self and the kingdom of darkness? Will we waver as it suits us like the king? Or will we be like Daniel, giving our lives over to the Lord's ultimate authority, moment by moment and day by day? We each need to choose this day whom we will serve. And so I say to you, brother and sister, choose whom you will serve. Who will be your ultimate authority? Second, because it is, obviously, uh, it is obvious in this text that it calls us to emulate Daniel in our lives, it calls us to a life in which we receive by grace the imputed righteousness of Christ. But the amazing news of the gospel does not just stop there. It's also that he gives us his imparted righteousness by his Holy Spirit that guides us through his command in his word and commands obedience from us. His imputed righteousness is given to us by grace, nothing we can do, nothing we can earn. It's what justifies us before the Father. His imparted grace is given to us so that we learn continual and growing obedience through sanctification. And it is in this obedience that we act as Daniel did. Notice that he did not riot when a law so obviously against his God and conscience was put into place. He did not revolt or revile, nor did he just surrender. He simply behaved in the way that God had always required. He did what followers of Christ do, in his case, of Yahweh do. He did not hide it, nor did he shine a light on it, in order to show bitter disregard for his earthly rulers. He simply acted like a follower of Yahweh. The action we are called to when the world so obviously fights against us as it does and as it will is to provide such examples that rise above the fray that we can know we are following in the image of Christ. Peter himself calls us to this in that passage we've looked at repeatedly through Daniel, but I want to look at one more time today. Would you turn there with me again to 1 Peter chapter 2? 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's take a look starting in verse 11. And as I read through this, I want you to hear this not as a letter written to a faraway people in a faraway land during a faraway time. I want you to hear this as a letter written to us, the people of Mission Fellowship, in exile in the midst of the world. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called." Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, we follow this truth and we obey Christ in these odd and chaotic times, not because it is easy and not because it feels comfortable, but because we are commanded to by the one who died to bring us into reconciliation with the Father and who purchased us by his own blood. And because ultimately... Doing this, following in obedience, will lead to the greater proclamation of the truth that our God reigns and is coming soon to judge the living and the dead, restore the cosmos, and establish his reign once and for all. So I want to ask us, how do you image Christ in your reaction to earthly rulers? How do you image Christ in your reaction to earthly rulers? Is it like Daniel? Or is it like something else? It calls us to ask the question of who we will serve and how we will obey. But then third, our text today applies to us in a way where Daniel's story reminds us that if we have chosen to serve the sovereignty of God, then God is able to sustain you and deliver you from any beast that comes against you in spite of how things seem. God is still in control. And so we accept the free gift of salvation from Jesus, and we live lives in ultimate submission to his sovereign reign as our king, because in doing so, we proclaim the same truth that King Darius came to back in Daniel 6, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Amen? Amen.